Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Welcome to Backstage With. Conversations with your favourite theatre actors and creatives. I'm Mikey Worrell. Theatre runs in the family of today's guest. By the time he turned 16 years old, he'd already done three shows at the London Palladium. He's subsequently been in productions of A Chorus Line, Cats, The Book of Mormon and Wicked. When he's not in a show, he's dancing pretty much every day and teaching his own classes too. I'm not sure anyone loves this business as much as Harry Francis. Theatre is is very much a family business for you, isn't it? Sure. Was it inevitable that this would be your career? Yes and no. So I'm the third generation of actors in my family. My grandparents are both actors. My nan was acting till she was 96 and she was filming Ricky Gervais' series Derek, you know, and all these amazing things, you know until her final year. And my grandfather was the first TV detective in England on a show called No Hiding Place. Oh, wow. And my dad's an actor, um, Clive Francis. My mum, Natalie Ogle, um, is an actress as well. My sister works as an agent as well. And so it's a real family business, yeah. But it was always around. So I was always backstage at theatres. I had every book about theatre on the shelf that I, so, you know, I was always around it and naturally started to form a huge passion for it. But I remember I had my first audition when I was six. And when I didn't get it, my dad banned me from all auditions and said, he's not going into the business. No, because I was so heartbroken. And my dad didn't want to see his son going through all the ups and downs that he goes through. So a few years later, my mum, went behind my dad's back and got me another audition for a West End show, which I then got when I was nine. So there was that bit at the beginning where he was going, nope, he needs to go and do something else. But if your child's passionate about something, you're not going to stop them. So, but I I introduced them to the musical theatre world because they were very much the straight theatre world. And although they introduced me to some musicals, I was obsessed. So suddenly they had to know who Stephen Sondheim was and they had to know who Ethel Merman and Zira Mustel was. They had to know all these things because I was this obsessed child who wanted to know everything about the golden age of Broadway and all of that. (laughs) What was your earliest memory of of a theatre then? Was it seeing a show or or being backstage at one? Yeah. So the very first show I saw was my dad playing Scrooge in A Christmas Carol for the Royal Shakespeare Company at the Barbican. And I remember it so much because it was a very kind of traumatic experience because my dad was playing a lot older than he was. And he had this incredible makeup with this fake nose and all of, you know, this gray long hair. And I came backstage as a two and a half year old and walked around the corner into his dressing room and heard my dad's voice coming out of this creepy old man. And I remember hiding behind the corner. I was so terrified. And eventually my mom kind of went, look, Harry, this is the theater. Dad's fake. It's all fake. You know, dad's just dressed up. And I was just obsessed. I went to see that play I must mum must take me so many times and I sat with my feet not even meeting the end of the seat but I just remember the smell of dry ice I um, I remember my dad taking me backstage and because it was something quite haunting well it was it's Christmas Carol it's very haunting but something quite dark and mysterious I was so hooked on that and my first musical was also a Dickensian musical it was Oliver at the Palladium and my mum knew Robert Lindsay and Jim Dale so two different occasions as a three-year-old I went backstage and got to 
experienced that. I went dressed as the Artful Dodger. I remember that very clearly. I had a top hat and a long coat, and I decided at the age of three, if I'm going to see Oliver, I have to be in costume. But the mad thing is, I do remember it. I do remember it. It made such a huge impact to me. And, and I've always said to friends who are working who have kids that if you get the opportunity to bring them backstage, it is so special because there are only so many jobs where your child gets to come and watch you at work and not only watch you at work, be in kind of awe of what you do. So it's a very special experience to be able to come and see your parents at work and think it's pretty awesome. So yeah, that made a huge impact on me. And I've been obsessed with theatre and wanted to see everything every night as much as I could ever since. You mentioned the Palladium there. That theatre has been such a huge part of your career. You've done four shows there. Yeah. How did it feel when you went backstage for the first time when you were doing The King and I? It was so special. So before my mum snuck me off for that audition, which is for The King and I, Mm -hmm. I begged her to, she said, I will take you to see one show during your summer holidays. And I begged her, I said, I want to see The King and I with Lane Page. That's what I want to see. Because what other eight-year-old, I was eight at the time, what other eight-year-old doesn't want to see Elaine Page in a show. And that was my, my goal. And um, she took me to see it. And before that, they used to do these backstage tours at the Palladium. So I got to go on the stage before I even got to see the show. And I remember standing on stage, my mum gave me a little nudge. She went, go on, make, I think you should make a little wish. And my wish was, I went, I want to be on this stage. I want to do a show. And I think when you're in that kind of innocent mindset, especially as an eight-year-old, there's no reason why it wouldn't happen. You just go, oh, I'm going to do this. So... I went to see the show and then suddenly went, oh, there's a part for a white boy in this. I didn't, I completely forgot, you know, I grew up watching the film, but I completely forgot there's a part called Bluey. And I was like, oh, okay, I want to do that. So I begged my mum every day and she, she got me an audition and, and, I, and I got it. So then when we went to rehearsals and we got to go on stage, it was, I remember the first time they, you know, you rehearse they rehearsed the kids in a studio. And actually, my children's director was Lawrence Connor, you know, who... Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I remember him being incredible with us. And he really made it a magical experience for the kids. And so did the chaperones. I had this amazing chaperone called Sharida Lankford, who is ZZ Stralin and Summer Stralin, everyone, um, that's their mum. And again, she made it such a magical experience for the kids and made it feel special. But I remember the first time being on stage and actually getting quite shaky and looking around and going, wow, I'm here. But then I spent a whole year of my childhood there doing King and I, and then went back and did Chitty Chitty Bang Bang for six months with Michael Ball and all my heroes in one show. And it was, it really was so magical because you, you know, you get to do three shows a week or depending on the schedule, two shows or three shows a week. So when you get there, you're so excited, one, to see all the other kids, to see the cast, but you know, it, you don't do it long enough for it to feel tiring. For you, it's just exciting. You're just walking into a West End show and, you get to leave school early to go and do a matinee. It's exciting. So I actually ended up, I, I've actually done five shows there because I did a few performances of Scrooge with Tommy Steele in the ensemble as a kid as well. And so I did that, which again was cool experience as well. And then, yeah, and then got to come back as an adult, the chorus line and Cats. It's just such a special building. And there are so many people who were there when I was a kid who are still there now. And it's lovely to kind of, you know, it was lovely to come back in as an adult and for them to remember me, for me to remember them, and to actually properly make a conversation. And having said that, in general, the thing I did respect, and I, you know, if I ever have a chance to work with kids again on a show, I really want to make the point to talk to them as adults. And I think the few times I've, ta- I've done Panto and, I, and I've had, you know, done Peter Pan with the Lost Boys, I feel like I have, but I think 
when you go up to children and you treat them like they are members of the company, I think that is the best education you can give them because you give them the opportunity to ask questions. I used to stand backstage and ask how certain lighting things were done or how a gauze were. I used to be able to ask people questions because they actually did speak to me instead of just, you know, leaving me in the corner of a chaperone. They would come over and say hello to me. So there were so many special people who've become friends since, especially with the King of Die. The thing that's ridiculous, there are people in that cast, in the adult cast, who look the same. I just, I wish, I, I actually have Malaysian blood, but I, I don't think I've got the, the wonderful genes where I stay looking young forever. I'm definitely going to age, but they, they look incredible. I bump into people and um, there's a guy called Ethan Lee Fong, um, who was, he's covered Aladdin and stuff in the last few years. And he was in the adult cast and he looks exactly the same. I wish I had that gene. I wish I had it. <laughs> Don't we all? Speaking of King and I, who was your, was Elaine Page still Anna when you joined the cast? No, so I joined as Josie Lawrence was coming in, who was incredible because, again, someone amazing to be around as a kid because she would make the same naughty adult jokes in front of the kids and we thought it was hilarious and she was just amazing and she treated me like her son for that year she was she was a really extraordinary person and I think actually one of I, I think one of the most talented leading actresses out there and I really there's so many roles I wish she would be playing I, I would love to see her play Mama Rose and all these incredible roles because I she's just she's incredible and got a great voice but just such a funny comedic actress but yeah I had one great people and K.O. Wolford who was our king who passed away a few years ago again amazing amazing man and again always took time to get to know all the children and be so lovely with us yeah that's lovely because actually i haven't ever had a conversation with someone where they've talked about being the child in the room rather than the adult with the children it sounds so so magical it really was it it, it it was it was everything you dreamt it would be you know the kid you go if you love going to the theater and you go oh i want to be in it there was no disappointments it was just amazing it was it was great and especially on you know chitty i got to fly around in in a car around a theater. I got to come up through trap doors. I got to fly. I got to be scared by Richard O'Brien and Paul O'Grady and all these amazing people. It was just, it was the most exciting thing. And God, when you finish a show as a kid, it breaks your heart though, because it is the most magical experience. Sure, when you're an adult, you, you may be, you know, I have been heartbroken at the end of jobs, but there are times you go, I think my body is ready to finish this. I'm exhausted. As a kid, you're not. You, you could keep going and do that show for as long as you possibly want. Yeah, so it's a very special time, I think, for kids. And I think if anyone listening to this, if you ever are working with kids, just make sure it remains an, a magical experience and don't make them jaded before they have to be. <laughs> <laughs> is there a show that you wish was around when you were a kid? Is there a show that you wish you could have been in as a child? Yes, I I wish I got the chance to play Dodger, but then again, I probably wouldn't have got it. I was quite a little round child, and I, I auditioned for Gavroche a few times, and the feedback a few times was that I had, I looked too well fed to be a starving street urchin, which I understand looking back, maybe, but I think I still would have given it a good go. But yeah, I think that's the only one. And also, I was I, I wish I had started dancing soon enough to be in the bracket because I, I was just about turning too old to go into Billy Elliot when it first started but I did audition the very first year but I really hadn't focused on my dancing then and that show inspired me to dance but I wish I'd started training sooner because you know Billy Elliot was the best 
kid show ever you know they got to do everything so yeah i wish that one was a bit earlier maybe she is sooner <laughs> that really surprises me because given your body of work you look like the sort of person who's been dancing since they came out of the womb but that's not the case uh well i was doing lots of you know my, my local dance school we would do lots of shows but it wasn't trained you know technical dancing we would kind of get up and jump around and have you know and we, you know it was great choreography for kids but it wasn't ballet class and stuff like that but I was, when I finished the shows, when I finished Chitty, I went to Sylvia Young's and we did two days a week of dance and, and, and all of that. But again, because I was quite a round kid, I didn't take it seriously. My kind of defense, you know, was to take the piss my, because I felt self-conscious. You know, it's the only regret I have with those schools is kids are going through puberty. Don't shove them into leotards. They feel self-conscious enough as it is. I used to go into dance classes and try and not stand in front of the mirror because I was, I was, you know, around kid forced to wear a leotard or a unitard and it wasn't the healthiest thing to go through. So I didn't take dance seriously. I, my way of going, of dealing with dance classes was to take the piss and, and, and send myself up by being in the classes. You know, the idea of me being this shape and trying to dance, I, I wanted to send it up because it was my way of defending myself. But then my mum did a few months, I don't know, um, uh, chaperoning on Billy Elliot's and she said, look, they've been going to this amazing ballet teacher called Anna Dubuisson at Danceworks. She said, I've been watching them, you know, because sometimes the chaperones have to go and just chaperone the kids while they have ballet class during the day. She said, I've been watching this incredible teacher. I think you should go in your half term. Because I tried, you know, I, I begged my mom. I said, please, you know, I want to lose weight. And we've tried different things. I always tried to lose weight. And my mom said, look, let's just try ballet. Maybe you'll enjoy ballet. And then it's not thinking about exercise. You just might fall in love with doing something. And she couldn't have been more right. I got there and I came out going, I love this. I want to do more. And it was proper ballet. Anna threw me in the deep end. And I think after like my second day of coming, of coming to an open class, and she came out and said, I want to give you a scholarship. I want to train you. Which meant I eventually left Sylvia Young's and got to go. I spent a whole year training in ballet where I went and trained once or twice a week at the English National Ballet Company with incredible dancer called Yatsin Chang. I got to go to Cuba and train in Cuba and Havana. That changed my life. A few months in Cuba with a ballet company and, and kind of changed my mindset to be that of a ballet dancer. And that really, that experience changed my life. The obsession, and, and anyone who's worked with me knows that I'm always turning. I'm always doing ballet tricks and stuff. That is because I was 14, I think, when I got to go to Cuba and every time the class would stop, all the men would put the music on of, you know, all the big ballet solos and Don Quixote to La Corsera or something. And they would all just be practicing tricks and jumping around and showing off and, and helping each other learn new tricks. And I was nowhere near their level, but I kept throwing myself in and they were helping me and they helped me learn how to do certain tricks and turns and double tours. And that obsession to constantly be learning and, and, and moving and, to aim for more is something that stuck with me and I remember when I went to college people would always say in between class oh, can you just sit down stop jumping around stop turning but I would have time in front of a mirror and I would have if there was ever ever an opportunity to be in a studio by myself I would have a playlist of every ballet solo you can imagine and just put it on and I would do all these solos that I had kind of taught myself from watching these guys in Cuba and that was my training was just teaching myself it was like one of those montages in a dance film where you see someone in their point shoes constantly just working working I, I was like that but it was more just out of love so that's kind of how I, I lost 
weight originally was was finding my love for dance and then like I found a healthy balance after that but that's how I fell into it and then after a year at this ballet school I ended up going to college a year early I skipped my GCSEs which not everyone would agree with but I got offered a place a year early and I went to college when I was 15 which was an amazing opportunity and maybe maybe was too young to be there I guess because it's a lot to handle mentally but sure but it was it was an amazing experience again and got to work with some incredible teachers then. Where did you go and how long were you actually there? Because I know you went to do you went off to do West Side Story on tour when you were 16. So that must have been quite a short stint. Yeah. So I turned uh, 16 during that first year at college. I was at Millennium, which is now Millennium Performing Arts. It used to be called Millennium Dance 2000. And I did two and a half terms, I think. And during my half terms, I used to go off and do lots of dance classes and used to go back to Anna Dubrasson and keep training with her. And I saw these posters advertising these open auditions for West Side Story. I kept saying to my mum, I was like, oh, can I skip college and go to the audition? I just want to experience going, you know. And she said, Harry, don't because, you know, you don't want to make the college angry. You, do, you know, there's no point doing that. You know, you're training, just don't bother. But I kept going into classes and seeing the poster on the wall, you know, advertising these open auditions. And I thought, oh, I really want to do it. Anyway, I listened to my mum's advice, I listened to everyone's advice, and I didn't go. I didn't want to annoy anyone. And so they auditioned over maybe four or five weeks. And then in their final week of auditioning, they hadn't found someone to play Baby John, the youngest Jet. Mm-hmm. And I was in my half term. I was in a ballet class at Danceworks. And Neil Rutherford, the casting director, and Joey McNeely, the director, they were watching me through the window and they said to the guys in the front desk, they said, can you, can you tell that guy to come and talk to us afterwards? Uh, I came out of my ballet class and got told to go and speak to them. So I walked into the studio in my ballet tights, age 16, and they said, can you do a few jetés for us? Can you do some jumps? Okay, can you come back tomorrow and audition properly? Went back the next day, learned the routine, got through the round, got sent material. Anyway, by the end of the week, I ended up being in the finals and I did this whole day of auditions with, you know, singing and material, dance round after dance round. And at the end of the day, I was the last person to leave the building because I think I, I just didn't want to leave. I, you know, the audition had finished and I was in such, in such a high. I was just talking to loads of dancer friends who were there and people on the front desk because I was telling them about this crazy thing that's just happened. that I got to audition for a professional show. And as I was the last person to leave, I walked out the building and I saw the casting director on the phone and he took me aside and he said, just to let you know you're going to get an offer next week. And so I went home. My parents said, that's incredible, but just wait until Monday because they're both actors. They know what can happen. They said, but just wait. And then I got the call to say that I got the job. And it was the first of not many, but those few occasions in this business where your life can change so quickly. And it's the most extraordinary thing when those moments happen. They don't happen often. And sometimes you go, please, can I just have one of those moments right now? In fact, when I think about it, I've only had two others where that's happened, where something has been so drastic, a change that you go, this is incredible. But that was just, yeah, it changed my life. And I got to go off on tour for a year and learn so much from so many people. And what better show to start with, doing the original choreography with Joan Robbins. It was the most extraordinary first job. Two questions. What did your parents say when they found out that you had auditioned in the end? And how did the college take it? Oh, they, my, my parents thought it was the best thing in the world. They were, they were, 
thinking it was the most exciting thing ever. And when I got the job, again, literally, it was like one of those scenes on X Factor when everyone screams and whatever. (laughs) They were thrilled. They were so happy for me because they know that when a door opens as, as a performer, you take it, you go through that door. If an opportunity that is so bizarre opens up for you and you weren't expecting it, you go with that because you don't, you can't plan. You know, you could have gone, well, no, no, go finish your training. But then those, that opportunity could have never happened for me. Sure. So they thought it was the best thing ever. The college were supportive because they knew it was a great opportunity. They were supportive. However, they also made it kind of clear that if I were to come back, I would have to start my training again. And I remember that was the very start from, from that point throughout the entire tour was this kind of decision whether I was going to go back to train. And, and I kind of felt that, you know, a year on the road learning to go back and not only go back to the college and go back into say second year, I had to go back to first year because that's, they said you have to go and restart your training I just, yeah, I just, I just didn't agree with that. So I, I eventually duck it out and didn't, I didn't go back, but they were very supportive and they all came to watch. And in fact, I think my entire year came and all the directors and, and when I, I've been back since uh, the directors have always been very supportive and they're a bunch of lovely, you know, a really great team. And so, yeah, they were, they were supportive, but I think again, it was an unusual situation for them to be in with someone who's only just joined. When the tour came to an end, what were the next few months like for you? How how soon did the next job come along? It was tough because, again, I was trying desperately to prove that I could get another job. Mm-hmm. And I was auditioning for everything. I got this amazing agent at the time and he got me in for everything under the sun. And I would get down to the end and I would either be too young or too old. I was too old for children's stuff, but I was too young for any West End show. And I struggled and I finished the job heartbroken because I didn't have anything to go to and I've been auditioning for months that's the awful thing with a job it's one bit I'm gonna throw a bit of advice out there for anyone if you are in a show after this lockdown and it's your first job or or your second or third just enjoy it for as long as you can because there is always that patch at the end of the year's contract where suddenly the focus is on what comes next don't worry about what comes next straight away just enjoy it because the first six months of that contract, just enjoy where you are at that moment. Because otherwise, if you're thinking ahead, you never actually take in where you are. But yeah, that was a struggle. And then eventually I got um, off the Peter Pan um, in Brighton and that was a great job. And while I was in rehearsals for that, I then got off the Hairspray um, on tour. And that was my um, second long job, which was incredible with Michael Ball and um, Les Dennis, Brian Connolly, all these incredible people. And Claire House was my Amber, who was just amazing, and Laurie Scarf. And yeah, it was a really cracking show. And again, it was a show that I went to see on Broadway years before. So again, it was another dream job. In fact, I think I saw it three times on Broadway. I think I kept dragging my mum back to see it because I thought it was so perfect. And I went back to see the tour, the, the recent tour, I don't know, a year or two years ago. And it just reminded me what a clever show it is. You know, it's... um. It's just a celebration of everybody. It's a, it's, it's a really clever show. It's really clever writing. I can't wait for it to come back next year. The original, everything, the original choreography production is going to be Absolutely. amazing. Absolutely. Especially like, cause it's 13 years on. I, like this has never happened before. I, t- I tell you what, one of the best things I did on that job, timeless to me, the, sh- the number that Edna does with Wilbur, we had 
a number of different combinations. We had Mickey DeLenz or Les Dennis or Nigel Planer with Mickey Stark, uh, Brian Conley or Michael Ball, and all the different Wilbers and Edners used to be matched up in different venues. And without fail, every night I used to sit, um, there was a bed in the wings that um, Penny uses for Without Love, mm-hmm. and sit on the end of that bed and I used to watch them every night and absorb the differences and there were it was wonderful to watch the consistency and when something goes wrong oh that's great let's add that in we're going to keep that in and and watching people like Les Dennis and, and Brian Connolly where they're both very funny men and they could keep going further you know when they are ad-libbing they could keep going but it's knowing when to stop so one person gets the final laugh watching all these things that was a huge yeah it was the most amazing experience to get to watch those guys so I I if anyone is going into the next cast, make the most of watching that because it is a great opportunity to watch an, a, a proper old school 11 o'clock number and see how it's done. What's your favourite part of that show? Oh, do you know what? Actually, I would say it's Without Love. Actually, no, I was, I was going to say it's, it's these amazing silhouette moments. They have it in, in Without Love and then the curtain goes up and we're all on the platforms. But actually, Good Morning Baltimore has got to be one of the most perfect openings to a, to, to a show. And, you know, I remember when I first saw it, you see all these people, these silhouettes of people, and you think, oh, that must be projected. And then to realise actually people are on these platforms and we're all up there doing it. It's, you know, to start up there, you climb down, the curtain goes up, you charge forward. There's, there's so much going on and it's so filmic. And, and welcome to the 60s as well. You know, I just think it's a perfect show. I really do. I think especially, I've seen other productions that are incredible, but that original production for me is just perfection i think it's just it's yeah yeah i'm a hairspray fan you can probably tell (laughs) yeah no me too i completely wholeheartedly agree so from there how long was the gap between hairspray and wicked for you in fact did you end up in the same cast as claire house no so claire was in wicked the year before hairspray so i went to during rehearsals being the pineapple girl and she was great and no i went into wicked after hairspray i did another production of peter pan in dublin and then with Les Dennis again, and then I got to go in the, and, and join Wicked as cover Bach. So that was one of the, those moments where, again, I finished Hairspray, the same thing. Months, I can't literally, I think it must have been about four or five months of auditioning and not getting anything. And even hearing comments from other people going, God, have you not got something yet? Have you not got anything? And this weird pressure that you put on yourself because you want to prove that that last job wasn't a, a fluke. And months after Hairspray finished, I was, I was like, no, I don't think anything's going to happen. And then I got this phone call where I'd been waiting on Wicked and also a short run of a chorus line in Tel Aviv, which was two weeks run, four weeks rehearsals, two week run with the original creative team. And if I had got it, it would have been chorus line straight into Wicked. And weeks went by since my finals and I hadn't heard anything from either. And I was going into class every day, feeling very down because I just thought, there's nothing else to audition for now. I've, I've, I've lost all hope. And then got this phone call saying that I've been offered both in one phone call. And again, it's one of those moments that you feel kind of bipolar in a way. And someone explained it the other day. They said, you, there are so many ups and downs you could get whiplash. And it's so true from being so down that you think, oh, maybe this isn't for me. And then suddenly you're like, hey, I'm going to celebrate and order a pizza and have a glass of champagne you know it's so it's such um the highs and lows are so extreme sometimes but yeah wicked was 
again, I was, I was 19 and having the best time ever. It was, it was great. There was a five or six month gap. What jobs were you doing during that time? What were your survival jobs? Okay, so this is where I regret things massively. Okay. When I was, so when I was at college, I did have a, a, I had actually a great job. I worked on a Saturday at Dress Circle, which was a theatre shop in London, which doesn't exist. I loved Dress Circle. And it's the best thing ever. And for a theatre geek like me, it was great because if someone walks in and said, where's the Japanese recording of Phantom from 19... whatever I would know where it was because I would be that person who knew so it was great gig for me but after that I was in that mindset that I um, was like well I'm I don't want to you know get a job just in case I, I get a performing job and it was the most stupid thing I could have done because I kept holding out and yes in some sense there were a few times where if I had just started that job I would have had to leave the job but it's one of my biggest regrets if I could talk to my younger self I would have said go and get the experience of getting a normal job because I just set into my savings. And that's kind of what I did. I didn't even start teaching to a lot later. So I would literally ease into my savings. And I think that was one of my biggest regrets, um, not doing that sooner. So at that point, nothing. I just spent my time and money going to dance classes every single day and singing lessons every day and constantly trying to train. I think also because I hadn't finished my training, I was so determined to keep training myself. So I think in those gaps, my focus was great. I finished a job. Now I can just go to class every day and do even more classes. But you know, they don't train you for that. They don't explain that to you. And I know I was only at college for a while, but people say to you, oh, you know, when you're at college, you know, it's a tough industry and we all nod our heads going, yeah, I know. And we don't know until we get out. And I actually think more than the students being educated on that, I think the parents need to be educated on that that you shouldn't be ashamed if your performing child, adult child, isn't doing a performing job. Understand that it goes hand in hand. And if your child is working in front of house, that is respectful and they are doing, they're still working in this industry. I think I, I hear too many people putting pressure on their kids and saying, oh, maybe it's out of naivety going, oh, so you didn't get that audition or you didn't get that job. Oh, are you sure this is for you? Because you shouldn't be working at Boots. No. That person is working there so they can do the other thing. I'm very passionate about that, you can tell. No, but that's really good advice because actually it's not something that is talked about very often. And I've, I've read so many articles before where they talk about performers who have jobs alongside their evening jobs actually being in a show. And, and yet it's still kind of taboo to talk about it. But I feel like it's going to be an even bigger thing when we come out of lockdown. Well, I mean, the one thing I've always done is even from college, I've always found ways of selling my artwork or I found ways of filming cabarets and stuff and editing and stuff and I've always made bits of money here and there so even if it hasn't been consistent money I've worked out ways so I can stay creative and uh, keep going I think that's always been my thing is because I love to do so many different creative things from painting to writing to whatever I, I always want to try and do my best to make money from one of those if possible it's difficult but even if it's a you know 30 pounds here or 50 pounds here you know just in in, in places it it's for my head i like to feel like i'm i'm still doing something involved with the arts i 100 percent know what you mean that that money feels like it's worth more because you weren't it that way yeah. than if you'd earned it being paid by the hour in wh smith i completely understand yeah yeah no definitely definitely wicked is a show that comes up a lot on this podcast mostly because i spent my teenage years in that theater completely obsessed what's your favorite memory of being in that show Oh, God, there are lots. So I did it with, with uh, Rachel Tucker, who was just insane, and Gina Beck. 
and yeah, some insane leading ladies with all the different covers. I'm trying to think, I mean, to be honest, I learned a lesson during Hairspray where I would be working so hard in that show and you'd come out of stage door and you would feel invisible. If you're not the principal, no one wants to know. I'm not saying that you come out going, can I sign someone's autograph? But you, you, you get the sense that I, you know, I would have people come up to me and go, oh, were you in the show? And you go, yeah, I was, because you feel deflated because you've just been jumping around the last two and a half hours. And you think, wow, you know, I'm, I'm not wearing a mask. I'm in hairspray. You know, it looks, you know, you can tell which one I am, surely. Although there was one person in that entire year who did stop me outside stage door and gave me a compliment and that meant the world to me. So again, any theatre fans out there, if you see someone in the ensemble, don't ignore them. If you think they're great or you think they're working hard, say good job. Doesn't have to, you don't have to you know, boost their ego too much, but just let them know that you've noticed them and noticed their work. So I learned my lesson from that. So when I went onto Wicked, I thought I'm not going to make myself feel invisible. I'm going to do something. And myself and Chris Howell, who was Dr. Dillamond, we used to do all the backstage blogs. And so I had a singing track. So there were lots of bits where I was singing off stage. And I had a lot of time off stage. I think I had about 40 minutes off stage during act two. Oh, gosh. Yeah, it was a lot from the, you know, thank goodness to, to the Witch Hunters um, song. It's, it's a long break. So I thought, all right, well, how can I fill my time? I brought my camera backstage and I was always making backstage videos and that kept me busy. And I thought, all right, well, I feel like I have more of a purpose in this building because I was also second cover box. So I, at that point, hadn't got on at all. And I got on later on a few times, but I thought I want to make sure I feel like I've got something to bring to this building. I want to bring something. I want to feel like I've, you know, when you go into a machine of a show like that, you're, you're slotted in. I thought I want to make sure I've done something to say I've, I brought something too wicked. So I spent the whole year making backstage videos with Chris and we had the best time. We'd made so many funny videos. Some of them we, we weren't allowed to share afterwards because, you know, they were maybe not the, uh, the most, uh, what's the word? Um, well, I think we, we, we got a bit naughty with some of our, our ideas and stuff, but there's one I wish I could release. It, we did an amazing version of Hit Me Baby one more time, but I know Wicked were a bit funny with the copyright issue with Britney Spears but we did the most wonderful version with Glinda. Everyone in costume, we did it at Shiz University. We got, we got the whole set out. We, did the, we, we, we literally recreated the entire video. And oh, wow. I, maybe one day I'll put it up under a fake YouTube account and just decide it got leaked by someone. We, we kept busy. So I think my favorite memories were actually that, were actually, and also the, the, the crew at the theatre, the stage management team were amazing because between shows, I would say, can you bring this part of the set down? I want to film something. And they'll go, okay. And they bring in Nessa Rose's house from Act 2, you know, with the curtain and the wardrobe. And they just leave it for me. And I would then come on and film something. Or I would say, oh, can you leave this lighting plot? Because I want to film something. And they always would. So they were, they, I'm very grateful to them because they gave me the chance to, you know, any theatre fan who would love to make any films on the Wicked set, I got to do all of that. I had the best time um, doing that thanks to them. So yeah, that, and I think my final show, which was Rachel Tucker's final show of her first time in, 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 in Wicked, standing underneath her singing Defying Gravity has got to be one of the most exciting moments. And I'm just standing there with my back to the audience looking up, but she is just sensational. And I went to see her do it on Broadway. I saw her second show um, on Broadway and she's just a class act. She's just extraordinary. In fact, but, but all of our Elphabas were, all of our Glinders were, the covers in that show, again, they, 
they cast it well. There's so many great performers who've played those roles. How is it when you are at the top of the show, when you're behind the, the curtain, it goes up and you're all doing your thing in the middle with the hands mm. and the audience erupts? Are you able to talk to each other or are you just completely like fixed focus? Uh, well, people, I think we were quite naughty on that show. We were, you know, we would talk on stage and stuff, but I, I, I'll be honest with you, and you know, this isn't being a downer, with Wicked, with the fan base it has, you get used to the screams. It has to be a very special night where it tops it, that you go, oh, wow, that's a great audience. Because there were certain fans that liked to scream to make sure they had been heard to be the one screaming. And sometimes oh. would scream over someone singing in a way that you go, oh, you're just basically going, we know that she's doing something different. Or if someone did something as a prank, they would laugh hysterically to make everyone know, oh, we know this is something different. I, I, I get it's, you know, that that's their way of, of appreciating it. But it does mean you get slightly immune to the reaction. You do watch, listen to the audience every night and they might go crazy, but you get used to it, especially on Wicked. But then on special nights like that, where you feel it's so real and people are, you know, up in their feet by the end because they don't want to sit any more. They want to show some more appreciation. That's when it feels special. So I, I hope that doesn't sound too much like a downer, but it, it I think no, no, I, I totally get it. That kind of audience, you do get used to that reaction, but it can be very special. And that final performance, of course, I walked off the stage in floods of tears and like everyone else did because it was so powerful. And she was screaming and singing the everything out of it. <laughs> she, she was amazing. Yeah. What is it like in the other big moments when you're not on the stage? When, when she's doing her last No Good Deed, are you all standing around the tannoy backstage listening? Or, or is it, are you kind of immune to, to the levels of ridiculousness? I think I watched her most nights because it was just before Witch Hunters. So I would come down and it was either that or sometimes when you have a long break, you sometimes find yourself leaving it to the last second. Even though I had 40 minutes to do nothing, I would sometimes be running down <laughs> um, and getting on stage just in time, mainly if I was making a film. <laughs> yeah, I used to watch a lot of that. It was, it was a funny track. I was, the, I was the rat. I don't know if anyone's ever noticed the rat in Wicked, but yes. I was the, I'm the one, it was the one ensemble track where you always wear a wig cap. So you always wear a wig or a mask. You're either a rat or you're Avrik, Fierro's chauffeur. And the rat, I mean, I have such a strong backstory for that rat, you know. Uh, <laughs> he appears three times. He wheels Glinda on into Shiz. He appears in Dancing Through Life and he appears at the, the railway station just pushing some stuff along. And I used to send friends a text when they came to see the show being like, look, you're probably not going to know who I am, but in this scene, and I would have to send them this long text going, I'm the one wearing this wig, I'm the one doing this and all that, just because it was quite easy to, to not recognise which one I was. It, was. it was a great year. I just, yeah, I, I, anyone who's been in that show, if they loved it as much as I did, yeah, they know it was a very, very special show and again it was it was um, one of the first shows I saw on Broadway so again it was that feeling that I think it's very special sometimes it's great going into a show you haven't seen but at the same time when you have loved something as an audience member and then you get to go into kind of wicked world and you're standing on stage you're looking around and you're going I'm actually in the middle of wicked it's just there is that kind of inner fan moment that is very very exciting and wicked um, I definitely had that with just the middle of um no one wants the wicked. There was a bit where we all go into um, into the bubble where she gets hooked back on to go up. And I remember just those moments where everyone would be singing and you feel everyone's voices coming towards you. And it was just, it was a very, very um, 
Oh, I'm getting very nostalgic now. I didn't realize how much I miss Wicked. No, I love it. <laughs> I'm going to have to listen to Wicked at the gym today. Okay. <laughs> it, was, it was a very special show. Very, very special. And I hope it opens very, very soon. We have to talk about Chorus Line <laughs> because that revival was a revelation to me. I came to, I think it was like your third or fourth preview. I had no idea what it was about. I think I'd vaguely heard one like somewhere yeah. during my life. I was in the front row. My friend had, had got the day, the day ticket. So we were in the front row. I had no idea what I was expecting. I just looked up and it said something like 1975 in the front. I was like, oh, okay. And as soon as you hear the five, six, seven, eight, I, you had me, you had me. <laughs> and I think I came back like four or five times because I was besotted and I was like, where has this been all my life? <laughs> You'd done that show before in Tel Aviv, but what what did that show mean to you especially because that was the first time you'd gone back to the palladium as an adult it meant everything that is hands down my favorite show and experience and i don't think i will ever top it honestly i don't think i ever possibly can top it because how often as a dancer do you get to play yourself i was literally playing i was playing mark and i covered mike um but i but Mark was so special to me because I was that age. I was his age. I was that overly eager dancer, the one wanting to be full out all the time. So it was me with American accent. It, it was literally me playing me. And it was, they did something very special on the first day of rehearsals where you do the meet and greets where they go around the circle and it's always embarrassing and someone tries to crack a joke and all of that awkwardness. And then they said, all right, sit down. One at a time, talk about yourselves. We want to hear your story. And it was like therapy. Um, you know, uh, people opened up about various ups and downs in their lives. And there were a few moments where people talked about things. And then later on in rehearsals, we thought, this is crazy. That person is that person. The, the story they told us on the first day somehow is the same one that they're telling in the show. And it was so powerful. There's a scene at the end of the show where Paul gets injured and we talk about what will we do when we can't dance anymore and all the ups and downs. I've heard those comments and those conversations happen, you know, so many times since. And this was, you know, based on the conversations of, of dancers in the 70s. And we still react the same now. And we still feel the same love and regrets and stuff as we, you know, it's, it's, it was just very, 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 very special. And to work with the original creator team, Bob Avian and Bayok Lee was just extraordinary because we would come into rehearsals and Bayok would start the day with an hour's boot camp, which is a class she's been doing since the seventies. And she would, it was everything from, hit training to yoga to pilates to ballet to everything and we'd be sweating and it would just be a drummer and you would feel amazing by the end of that class you do an hour and you'd feel ready to, to attack the day and then every time you got to a step they would say oh this step was created by tommy walsh in a nightclub oh this step here this one was created one day in the rehearsal and they would tell you all these stories and tell you out of the original team, because for anyone who's listening who doesn't know, Chorus Line is based on some recording sessions of dancers in the 70s talking about their lives. But sometimes the story the performer told in the show wasn't actually their story. Um, in At the Ballet, there's the bit about a girl fantasizing her, uh, her father is an Indian chief. And that's actually Donna McKechnie's story, who was Cassie. And there's so many wonderful things. And 
you felt like you were part of something so special. And that opening night audience where they did this, they did something actually pretty awful. Looking back, it was pretty terrifying. Apparently they invited to our first preview people who were in the finals for the show. What? I remember someone saying this. Yeah, or something like that. Or they offered comps out to fill the theater. And they offered so many out that people were going, apparently they've contacted people who were in the finals. Now, I don't know if that's true or not, but I remember getting some texts from people going, hey, we're watching. And I was going, oh my God, this is terrifying. I'm going to feel so judged. But talk about when the theater community comes together, it comes together. And that opening night crowd was just insane because the show starts with a piano and with, you know, step, leap, kick, turn, all of that. And it's just the piano. And when he turned around and went a five, six, seven, eight, and we danced, literally the, that's, that's the reaction when you get truly emotional compared to the one I was talking about on Wicked where, mm. where the stagey love of hearing those trumpets and the brass just come in was just electric. And I remember, yeah, wanting to cry from that moment because it was just, it was so powerful. And, and then again, on our last show, I remember holding our, the famous moment when we hold our headshots up at the end. Um, and you see this line of, um, end of the opening, you see this line of headshots and the audience clapped and they clapped and they clapped and they kept it going. And I can remember us holding it and I could hear the girl playing Val next to me and, um, the guy playing Paul and we all getting choked up behind our headshots going, Oh my God. Oh my God. Because it was pure love. It wasn't them coming because they love a celebrity. It wasn't them because they're coming because I don't know. It, it was coming simply because they loved the theater. They loved this show and they loved what they were watching. And, and that, yeah, it, when it's, when it's a reaction like that, it truly is the most special thing. And again, I had the same experience. I saw a chorus line on Broadway in 2006 and I remember I, this is just a, a small story but I remember before the show started I just turned around and then did a double take and realized Sarah Jessica Parker and Matthew Broderick were sat behind me and I remember thinking yep I'm, I'm on Broadway and this is New York sure of course they're behind me do you know what? That's really funny because I I've, I saw Sarah Jessica Parker at Dear Evan Hansen and my sister saw her when she was... I feel like if you go to New York and you go to a Broadway show, you're probably going to see Sarah Jessica it Parker. It's become the ticket. <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> yeah. But I, I tell you what, that cast was very, very special. But I had a dressing room full of guys in, on on, uh, on Chorus Line. Ed Curry, Simon Hardwick, who is Drew McConey's assistant on lots of jobs now, um, Shagan, and a guy called James T. Lane. Now, James, I saw do the show on Broadway, and then I saw him in Scottsboro Boys, which is one of my yeah. all-time favorite shows, and especially his performance in that. And they flew him over to play, um, to play Richie. And he was one of the most inspiring people to ever work with because he's had a very interesting life, James. He's been through a lot and he is the most, well, I call him James Talent Lane because he is, I'd, I'd say he's possibly the most talented person I've ever worked with. But he is, he taught me a lot about listening and taking what people were saying. And I still can't live by the way, I, I still wish I could take in more of the way he behaved backstage. And the times where he was a bit more understanding when something didn't go wrong is things would bother me, but he would find a way of always understanding why things didn't work and and I wish I could pick up more of that but I did definitely learn a lot from him and it's amazing there are sometimes these certain performers they will say certain things to you that stick with you forever and he was one of them and 
So that's some advice for any young performers out there is if you find someone is inspiring, not only as a performer, but as a human and the way they deal with this industry, listen, absorb, because that person might make a comment at some point that will stick with you forever and might change your mindset on a lot. But yeah, he was definitely one of them. Um, but that entire company was just so special. So special. You won the revival, Olivier, didn't no, you? No, no, we didn't actually. You didn't? No, we, uh, the only award we got was Lee Zimmerman as Sheila. Yes. And quite rightly, because she was incredible. She well. was amazing. Yeah, she was incredible. No, we didn't. We, we performed at the Olivier's, which was mm-hmm. insane. Another big dream come true. And yeah, no, we, we, we didn't. Um, it wasn't that well received, to be honest. Like, people loved it. The, the reviews were good, I think. But, you know, we, we did our first show, which was sold out because they filled the theatre. And then after that, we played to two levels. We never really opened the um, upper level, the, the balcony, um, for the entire run. So we did seven months, I think, in the end, which was still great because it's a huge theatre. But um, it didn't do financially that well because they did announce there was going to be a tour and all these things. And the cash recording, which we never got. I was just going to say, the most heartbreaking thing with with that was they announced the cast recording and then they told us they were going to, one, make a documentary about the making of our cast recordings. They would be a documentary filming us in the the studio, but also they were going to teach us all the cut songs from the workshops of the chorus line and we were going to be the first cast to record all that additional material so we were you know i was buzzing and when they closed the show and they said the cast recording is now cancelled all of us wrote to all the producers and begs but it was kind of out of their hands you know they they'd lost you know the backers had lost so much money by that point and they just couldn't um but i think that in a way for me was more heartbreaking than the show closing because that's one of my dreams that hasn't come true I was supposed to do a show that was supposed to be filmed for cinemas and it got cancelled. The filming got cancelled a week before. I was supposed, I've had twice where I've nearly done a cast recording and it's been cancelled. And I grew up watching, you know, Donny Osmond and Joseph and Oklahoma at the National and um, Hey Mr. Producer. My dream now is just to be on one thing that is saved in history that future performers get to watch. I, I You know, Cats. I grew up watching Cats, um, the 98 film. That is a dream of mine. I'd love to be on something that you can one day, as an old man, look back and go, I was on that. There's, you know, with all my millions of show recordings, I'd love to be able to be on one of them. That's one thing I'd love to come true still. But yeah, the chorus line one was sad. That was a big shame. Yeah, it's funny because it's one of those ones where Yes, it, it didn't recoup or didn't get the financial reception that it, that it deserved. And, and yeah, it closed unexpectedly early. Mm. But actually, I reckon if you ask anyone who saw it, you know, everyone would have been just so grateful to have seen it or, but all been part of that experience. And it's funny because it's so bittersweet in that, in that way, isn't it? As Lee said on our last show, she said in her curtain call speech, she said, don't cry because it's over, smile because it happened how wonderful that we got to do it and that a show that doesn't have a big celebrity name doesn't have a tv show behind it or you know anything like that it got on and it got on at the palladium and it was filled with extraordinary performers and people did see you know in a smaller theater it would have been packed but it's the palladium it's a huge venue to fill and it was a tough one but i loved it i was i still you know as i said i don't think i'll ever better that 
experience. I think that one was, and, and the best thing is I knew it at the time. And I think that's the thing is there are some where you look back and go, oh, I wish I had appreciated that. I feel personally for me in general, I feel like I've, the jobs I've loved, I have appreciated, but that one in particular, I knew every day I walked in that it was special. And also doing a show for an hour and 45 minutes without an interval is the best thing ever. Because, you know, we had a break where Cassie does her dance and Paul does his monologue, but you're in character the entire time. There's no room to get bored. There's no room for gossip. There's no room for bitchiness backstage or anything. You just go in and do your show. And then before you know it, the lights are coming down and that's it. It's done. It's, it, it's, it's the best experience for that. So I think people need to write more shows that are an hour and 45 minutes, no interview, um, no interval. I think that's a good idea. Yeah. I, I suspect it might be the moment you've already described at the beginning of the show, but is there is that your favourite moment or is it is it a different bit in terms of big ensemble moments? Uh, oh, God, there's so many. There are, there are. I just love Give Me the Ball. Give Me the Ball. I, I'd say the build-up to the big moment in one, you know, okay. da, 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 and it builds up to the, to the bit where the lights come up. Um, I don't know if you've ever heard Stephen Schwartz talk about that. Have you ever heard him talk about yeah, that and Wizard of Nine, that comparison? It just keeps building. Yeah. That number keeps building and it keeps building. And when that happens and when you get to that moment and the audience go crazy, that is a very special moment. But actually, I think my favourite moment is actually a moment I wasn't in. There was a bit in the show, in one of these montage sections where people are reminiscing and singing about things. Um, I think they call the section Mama. Please take this message from Mama for me. And I think it's one of the most beautiful bits of Marvin Ham's uh, writing. It's beautiful of all these different stories crossing over. And I was just stood in the corner with my back to the audience during this, but I used to love listening to it. I just found it so haunting and knowing these were all based on real stories. But I think also it's a moment, it was a moment of stillness in the show that there were so many in those montages, there was so much going on where people singing lines everywhere, but it was a moment where they just stood still and people were facing in different directions. So it's not a moment I was in, but I just think it's a beautiful section. Yeah. There are certain bits of music in the show that you've been in that I find I will listen to. For me, West Side Story is somewhere. That moment in chorus line, something wonderful from, from King and I, where if I listen to them, I'll get choked up straight away. And I know that sounds a bit pathetic, but I will. I just, it takes me back to my childhood or takes me back to that moment and I get choked up listening to it. And, it, you know, especially if something is special to you, it's a musical memory. It, it, it pulls your heartstrings the minute you listen to it. And there are certain moments and shows that I listen to and it gets me very, very quickly because it makes you miss it. Absolutely. I, I have to ask you about Cats because you said Chorus Line is, your, is the favourite thing you've ever done. Had you asked me an hour ago to guess, I would have said Cats, just because you've done it so many times. Well, Cats is very, very, very close to it. Very, very close. I was obsessed with it. As you can tell, although this has been my job, I am a pure theatre fan. I am a theatre freak. I love it. and Which I love. I love that you love it so oh, much. I, I'm, I have no shame in that. I'm stadium proud. I love it. I used to watch the 98 film all the time. I used to dress up as Mistopheles. The neighbours would come round and they would just have to deal with the fact that this little child, six-year-old, was running around dressed up as a cat. I, I, I have footage somewhere of me dressed up as a cat singing memory. I mean, sure, you know, why not? But I, I loved it. And I think Cats, and especially that 98 film, was magical. You know, it was 
bizarre and, and amazing. And what, you know, I'll get onto the cats and quarantine thing in a, in a bit, but mm-hmm. um, Jacob Brent as, as Misto was such a huge inspiration, his little character and everything. It was, it was wonderful. So after Chorus Line, a few years later, I did a few other jobs, which were great and fun. And, and really, I got to work with Matthew Bourne, which was incredible and a whole different kind of way of working and just extraordinary. And I was auditioning for something else. And I overheard someone in, um, in the audition room say, oh, they're bringing Cats back to the Palladium. Because it was on at the Palladium at that time with, um, with Nicole and then Kerry Ellis. And someone said, oh, they're bringing it back next year with a whole new cast. And my ears just pricked up and I thought, oh, I want to be in it. I want to be in it. Dream come true. And I'd actually been offered the show in Germany years before. And it was this way up of holding out to see what happens with Wicked and whether I go off and do it in Germany. And I actually took the risk and didn't go. But it was always that dream of, of doing that show. And went in and auditioned and went through every round. I was, all, I was up for Mistopheles, Skimbleshanks and Mungo Jerry and auditioned for weeks and weeks and weeks and eventually got Mungo Jerry. And it was just the best experience to be at the back of the Palladium, which was special, but they turned the whole theatre into a junkyard. I got to work with Gillian Lynn, which was just amazing. And again, that theatre nerd in me was loving it because I was going, oh my God, I'm actually in this moment that I watched as a kid, the bit when we're dressing up at this point or being a cockroach or you know, any of these bits. I was buzzing because I thought, this, this is my childhood dream. If six-year-old Harry could look into the future, he'd be very happy to know that you actually got to dress up in these costumes. And I loved it. And I've always been a very disciplined person, but on that show in particular, because I am not physically designed to do a show like Cats. It's a very leggy show. I have to work very hard with my flexibility. It's not a natural thing for me. So I would wake up every morning. I would do 15 minutes of abs training when I would wake up. I'd get to the theatre about two hours before everyone else sometimes. I'd do my makeup and then I'd do a ballet bar. I would probably do too much, but I would do a ballet bar. I'd do like press-ups. I'd do some cardio training with my skipping rope. I'd then go on stage and do some ballet solos because why not? I, was, I became this kind of dance machine that I thought I'm going to you know, make sure I'm the strongest dancer I possibly can to survive this job. And I actually never missed a show on Cats for the whole year. And, and, and yeah, and I, I just loved it. And I had an amazing romper teaser, um, Georgie Leatherland. And I feel sometimes with that, with those two roles, you become very much joined at the hip because you are on stage all the time. And she was incredible. So I was very, very lucky to have her as a partner and it was the best time. And I thought, you know, when I finished, I had this very cool experience of, again, a rare experience, but it was the first time I had a crossover where I finished Cats, well, not, and, and, and nearly a crossover. I finished Cats on a Saturday and I started rehearsals for Mormon on the Monday, which was amazing. But I actually, you know, as much as I thought that was really cool to go from one job into the next, I never, I don't know, I still hadn't got over Cats. So I was still, it was in rehearsals for something else going, this is amazing. I'm here, but Oh my God, I'm still heartbroken. I'm not doing cats anymore. And it was this weird thing because again, it was a very special job. Yeah. I loved it. And I was so grateful. I got to go back last year and do the show again, which was a very cool way to, to get it. Cause I, I, I knew they were auditioning for the international tour and I bumped into the casting team and they, I knew they were looking for a Mungo Jerry again. And I thought, I don't really, you know, I love doing Mungo Jerry, but 
I would want to go back and do something different, even if it's covering something different or anything. Anyway, the guy who was placed, who was supposed to play Mistopheles got another job at the last minute. And they called my agent and just said, would he be up for trying Misto? And again, dream come true. I jumped at that. And so it meant I got to share the, the contract with somebody else. And when I did the first bit, then another guy came in and I came back. And again, it was a childhood dream come true to be in that sparkly jacket and fly down from a ceiling and to do that incredibly hard solo. It was a huge, and, and you know, when I explained earlier that I used to go into a dance studio and practice all my ballet tricks, all of that paid off because suddenly there was me on stage having fun. And there's a section at the end of Mistopheles where you, everyone goes into the audience and you just show off, you just do all your tricks. And I, I think, I don't know if I would have been as fearless in London because if I was doing the show in London, I would have known people could be watching. And I had this feeling that I thought, I'm in China. I don't know anyone in the audience. I'm going to throw myself into these tricks. And if it doesn't quite land, it's fine. I'll style it out. And maybe a couple of times it didn't quite work, but I became fearless. I got to throw myself into trying tricks at the end and sometimes would surprise myself I pulled it off or didn't. Or, but um, it was literally like me in that studio practicing my tricks. I got to go on stage and just throw my body around <laughs> and do crazy things. I'm still in pain from it now, though. Just <laughs> nearly a year on, I'm still in a lot of pain from, from that show. But um, <laughs> it was worth it, though. When people do lots of exercise, especially dancers, everyone hammers home how how important rest is if you were going in and doing all of that training while you were in the show at, at the palladium did you get enough rest or did like on a sunday did you just not move or um, were you still quite consciously I stretching and everything tend to crash so much on that sunday that i would i would sometimes spend most of that day in bed watching tv and ordering a pizza that would kind of be it would be so much of a crash that you would sometimes recover when i did the show last year it was different because some venues in China, you would have five days off between, which actually was harder because your stamina didn't stay up there. And sometimes you'd have the rest, but then your body would seize up in different ways. So it wasn't, the consistency wasn't there. But last mm -hmm. year was very difficult because we used to do four show weekends, two Saturday, two Sunday. And that I think is why I'm still in pain because you, to push yourself through two shows of Cats, is tough to wake up the next morning and not only do the show again, but actually to do an earlier performance because we used to do one o'clock shows on a Sunday. Your body does not have enough time to rest from one show to the next. And the amount of times you'd sit there in your full makeup, they've called out one beginners and you'd sit there looking in the mirror going, I can't believe I'm about to get my body through this. I, I don't know how I'm going to do this. I don't know how I'm going to do it. And then you get upstairs and you jump around and you do it and it's fine. The same with my solo, the amount of times I would get into that jacket and I'd just stare into the mirror and go, how am I going to do all these turns? How am I, I, I've got nothing left. There's nothing left. And then you come down on that rope and you have to, and it happens. And then suddenly sometimes you get a burst of energy and it's, you do more than you think you can. It's a challenge. Rest, you know, when you train as an athlete, when you train, you know, to be a bodybuilder, rest is planted into your training so it's important. And, and the same vocally for a singer, um, you don't get the rest that you deserve. So it's up to you to work out how to do that. I know some performers who don't talk until midday and they do certain things like that. But I don't know, it's a difficult one. It depends on the show. 
I tend to find if I'm doing a hard show, I just crash on that Sunday. I crash so much that I literally don't move a muscle. <laughs> oh God, I miss those days. I wish I was in the show <laughs> just for those days off so I can order a Domino's and not feel guilty. <laughs> the guilt-free pizza. Yeah. You made this amazing, ridiculously huge production uh, Cats in Quarantine video. When did you start working on that? Was that literally lockdown happened and right off to work we go? No, so I did the chorus line one first. They, the American mm-hmm. cast did that brilliant chorus line in quarantine film. And one of my producers, um, Adam um, Blanchet, messaged me and said, Harry, come on, you need to do one for us. So I did. I, I teamed up most of the chorus line cast and we did that. And I was enjoying getting back into editing so much. And looking back at that one, it, I think I could have done better because I hadn't really done much work with split screens before. So my chorus line one was me working out how to do all the split screen work. And the day I put that out, I knew there was this feeling that I thought that has got me through the last two, three weeks, getting these videos together and editing. Lockdown, you know, it's been good in places, but it's been a struggle. And mentally that got me through. I thought, no, 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 I need another project. I need something straight away. And I thought, well, cats. And I literally did this within a few minutes. I thought, you know, if, you know, cats, um, maybe I could just do my cast. Oh, but maybe I need to do my Palladium cast. Oh, well, maybe I should open it up to, eventually I thought, no, I need to open it up to everyone and see who comes back. So I, I made an email address. I put the poster out thinking and hoping I would get maybe 50 to 100 people. I got 333 videos from performers around the world. And yes, it was overwhelming. And I, I had this massive book that I was writing notes in when every time I got a video I wrote down what show they were which production which country who they played which sections of their video I want to use and I made so many notes I've got pages and pages and pages of notes in every single video but along the way I got to talk to people who did the show on the original US tour originally in London on Broadway and people were sharing these amazing stories with me And it just felt so special to get that opportunity to be in touch and then to be in touch with people from the 98 film that I used to grow up watching. It was just amazing. And what's so wonderful about a show like that, something that's so special about a big commercial show. I know sometimes people put down big commercial shows and say they're machines, but the wonderful thing is if you go and see a production of the Book of Mormon in, I don't know, or Wicked in Japan, or, or, or you, know, if, you know, if you spoke to that dancer, they would understand exactly which section you're talking about. Everyone shares an experience. And whether you did the show in the 90s or last year on the cruise, or if you did it in the Netherlands or, you know, anything, everyone has had an experience that is very unique. And although it might be different, there, there are so many similarities that bring us together. And... Editing it was just so much fun. I had the best time. And sometimes someone would send me a piece of footage that you go, that is so good. I can't not use that. That's, that moment's amazing. And Axel, who was a Mistopheles, who filmed it in Paris outside the Arc de Triomphe. And, and, um, and originally I was just going to do the, you know, two sections of the ball. And the more people sent me, I thought, no, let's do the whole thing. So yeah, I, I, yeah I was just and the day I put it out there and finally oh got to mention Josh Sood who was our assistant musical director on the tour last year 
And I did this thing where I said to everybody, can you film it using the music from the 98 film? So the tempo's consistent. And then I had this thing where I thought, oh no, what if I feel, you know, what if I finish this thing and suddenly copyright bans me from putting it up because it's using that recording? I thought, oh no, what mm-hmm. have I done? Maybe I should have got a track organized first. So I spoke to Josh and I said, look, can you match the tempo and can you recreate a track? So that entire track is Josh and two other musicians from the show. And he literally he recreated the entire orchestra. He's an absolute genius and I'm so grateful to him because he created a track that was so unique. And the White Cat solo at the beginning, he added that haunting ghostly sound with it as well. And it just added, it just made it very unique because it was a very specific to my short little film, you know? And so shout out to Josh Sood, who is um, a genius. Yeah, that got me through. And the minute I finished that and had this amazing buzz with Android Weber watching it and all these amazing things, I'm since then still been on the search to um, find a project that keeps me as obsessed. It's the best, when you've been creative, the best projects are the ones where you can't stop thinking about it. And I would be editing, but then I'd go off for an hour's walk and I'd be listening to the Jellicle Ball and my headphones on repeat, picturing what I could do and how I could edit it and what moments I could, and you get ideas the more you listen to it. And I know choreographers who work that way, they'll listen to a track on repeat and these ideas, when you have those projects, they keep you so sane and keep you so happy because you're just constantly finding more from you to put out there. I had the best time making it and hopefully I'll make something else soon. That's going to be very, very difficult to top. Yeah, maybe I need to try and do it with 444 people instead next time. But maybe. I, I tell you what, I wrote last year, I put a tweet out saying, wouldn't it be great for the 40th anniversary for Cats if they did a big Albert Hall celebration where they have 500 dancers on stage? Now, depending what theatre's like next year, I, you know, I, I don't think any big celebration will happen for Cats in that way. I can't imagine because we'll be just trying to get theatre back on track. But I'm glad that I've done my bit towards it to celebrate the show because I got a message from a girl who is 12 and lives in America who says she watches the Cats film every single day. She loves it and she wants to be in the show one day. And I said to her, I said, look at all the people on that, on that video. I said, the majority of those people have the same thought as you and they, and they got there. So just keep training. So it's a special show for that reason that so many generations have gone in and out of it. I love cats. I love, I love, <laughs> I love musicals. I love cats. I love everything. As you can tell from, yeah, how obsessed I am. Yeah. There's very little about theater I hate. So <laughs> apart from rejection, sure. that kind of sucks a bit, but apart from that, it's wonderful and I can't wait to have it back. Theatre people are very, very clever, and I know we will always keep finding ways to bring it back. So I still have hope that we will be back next year. It might be different, but we have to. It's one of those things, a bit like if you're an artist, you have to paint. If you're a a writer, you need to write. It's one of those things, and if you work in the theatre, you've just got to be part of the theatre. And if you're someone who loves going to the theatre, you can't imagine not going. It's, It's... it's too special and it's too unique to England, to, to Britain. And um, no matter if we're not getting the support we need, we will fight against it. We will. I know we will. 
good way to to bring it to a close i think nice way to end it oh. thank you so much it's been so lovely to to chat to someone who loves it as much as i do oh thank you it's been lovely that's it for this week's episode a huge thanks to harry and to wayne perry next week on the podcast i'll be joined by the two-time olivier award nominee sophie louise dan until then thank you so much for listening Thank you.